Good evening, my friends. I say in my best Alfred Hitchcock voice, welcome to a brand new episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller, old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. This is your host, Keith, better known as the Radio Show Nerd, and today's episode is called Tell Me a Story, meaning every series featured tonight is pure narration. There are no variety of actors, just one person telling the story. Well, except for one, because it's one of my favorite short vignettes. <laughs> so, without further ado, this is Terror Radio. The programs featured tonight are a original story entitled, so I guess I couldn't call it a series, but the first feature is an original narration called Scaredy Cat. And that is followed by the series Drop Dead, which was a LP by Arch Obler that was released in 1962. This particular story is called Chicken Heart, but it was originally broadcasted on the Lights Out radio series on March 10th, 1937. And that'll be followed by, as I like to call it, a one and done. This series is called Eerie Stories, and I have no information about it because I found nada. The story from this series is called Disappearing Professors. And after that is Tales of the Frightened. And this radio series came about in the late 50s and lasted through the early 60s. This featured short stories written by Michael Avalon. And they were narrated by the great horror icon, Boris Karloff. The story tonight is called Call at Midnight, which was first broadcasted sometime in 1963. And our final radio program will be Sleep No More. So, you all know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to Scaredy Cat. Scaredy Cat. Let me just say that I love my son to death, but at times he can be a real pain in the ass. Now I'm sure a comment like that, especially in this day and age, will get me, what do they call it? Oh, oh yeah, canceled. <laughs> but I really don't give a damn. I'm a 45-year-old widower, working nine to five, working nine to whenever, almost every day, and I'm dealing with a 14-year-old who still believes in the boogeyman. For almost a month now, my son Dennis has tried to convince me that someone or something sneaks into his room at night, stands at the foot of his bed, and just stares at him. He's even attempted to capture this so-called phantom on video but every time he shoves his phone in my face and pushes play all I see is an empty screen dad I'm telling you the truth he insists 
Oh, stop it. I yell back. You're acting like a little bit. You get the point. Of course, this causes him to dig in his heels. And soon he's begging me to let him sleep in my room because that makes him feel safe. Knowing he's been through an emotional tailspin due to his mother's death, I always give in and allow him to sleep with me occasionally. But that's about to end soon. I'm beginning to lose my patience with this things that go bump in the night crap. This is not some bootleg episode of American Horror Story. This is reality. And a depressed teenager with a vivid imagination is not about to disrupt my life. I blame his mother for this. May she rest in peace. From the day Dennis was born, she fawned over and coddled him to nauseam. Now, I believed in a stern hand and definitely not sparing the rod, but she wouldn't hear of it. So, every little cut or bruise was treated like some life or death situation. Whenever he shed a tear, which was damn near every day, it was as if the world was coming to an end and he needed to be protected from all the ills of society. Since her death, he hasn't been the same. He's become moody, quiet, and downright strange. He went from a spoiled, but yet self-assured and gregarious young man to a whimpering and brooding coward who seems to be afraid of his own shadow. Instead of dealing with the loss of his mother head-on, he's conjured up some imaginary, oh, I don't know, goblin who terrorizes him when I'm not around. But... I must admit, these last few weeks, Dennis has calmed down considerably, and there's been no mention of this intruder, if you will. <sighs> no more late nights. I whispered to myself as I slowly entered the house. I looked down at my watch and cringe when I discover it's almost 3 a.m. I'm getting too old for this. I say out loud, hoping I don't wake up Dennis. Granted, at times, I can be hard on him, and I do expect a lot, but as a parent, I don't enjoy leaving my child alone for so long, and although he reassures me he doesn't mind, I know it bothers him. Yes, he's almost 15, but he's still a kid who doesn't need the added responsibility of taking care of himself while I kill myself working 14 to 15 hour shifts every night. Completely exhausted, I clumsily stumble up the stairs and quietly open his bedroom door and peer in. Thank God he's fast asleep. The soft hum of his breathing puts me at ease. Maybe all this scaredy cat nonsense is finally over. I don't even bother to take off my clothes and just topple onto my bed. As my body sinks into the mattress, I let out a long sigh. Unconsciousness soon follows. I don't know I don't know what time it is when I'm awakened by the sound of footsteps. Through blurry eyes, I see the silhouette of my son standing in the doorway with his arms crossed. Damn it, Dennis. I snarl, 
I thought we were done with this. Come on. But this is the last time. He begins walking towards the bed. Dad. It's not me. A terrified voice whispers in my ear. My eyes widen as I realize that Dennis is actually lying beside me. No short hairs rising? Then permit me to try you with the science fiction type. With all these Sputniks and satellites circling our Earth, and with all this competitive fission and fusion going on, science fiction horror is the very latest. And we are trying to bring you the very latest. Do you remember some time ago, in an Eastern scientific institution, they kept a piece of heart alive for weeks on end? Well, I got to thinking, what if that heart began to grow? And grow, and grow, and grow? Hello, operator, give me Mr. Regan, fast. Hello, Mr. Regan, this is Lewis. Listen, get me a rewrite, man. The thing's still growing. No, Chief, I tell you the truth, the corridor's choked with living, crawling flesh. No, 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 I'm not drunk. I'm telling you the truth. That little piece of flesh has grown until now. It's jamming that building all inside the space of an hour. You've got to believe me. It's the greatest news story of the generation, and here you argue with me. I tell you, it's the truth. You've got to believe me. You must believe me. I tell you, the only hope is to burn the building to the ground at once. Now, wait a minute, Doc. Wait a minute. Take it easy. I said you burn it to the ground. Burn. And I tell you, take it easy. I sent in a call. Oh, don't you understand? For some reason, I cannot even imagine. This tissue is doubling in size every hour. Do you know what that means? In another hour, it will be twice the size it is now. And long before that, it will break open the building with the force of its pressure. And then it will be free in the street. Do you hear me? Free in the street. And then those, those tentacles of protoplasm stretching out to feed on anything they can reach. What's happening? The building. See the walls. Cracking. I warned you. I warned you. is free. Gentlemen, 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 come to order, please. Gentlemen, please, quiet, quiet, please, please, please now. As mayor, no one realizes more than I do the necessity of immediate action in curbing this unspeakable, unbelievable emergency. And I assure you I took the speeches, Mac. That blasted thing is spreading like a forest fire. Call the governor. Get the National Guard out. Wait, 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 please, wait. Here is Dr. Alberts of the Research Institute. Let him speak. Step up here, doctor. Do something. Let's see what he's thinking. Gentlemen, it was in my institute this horror began. And if you give me a chance, perhaps I can stop it. What is it, doctor? Tell us first what that monster really is. Yes. Yes, I will tell you. That great, ever-growing mass of flesh, it is, or it was, a chicken heart. Chicken heart? Are you crazy, man? Yes, yes, chicken heart, I tell you. Chicken heart, listen to me, you fools. Listen, listen. 
I tell you, that mass of flesh was a chicken heart, the tissue of which, for some reason, is undergoing constant, rapid, accelerating growth. With every passing hour, its growth is doubling. Do you know what that means? If it is now one block in size, within 30 hours, that cannibal flesh will have increased in size to one square block to the 30th power. In 30 hours, every inch of this whole city will be crushed under that moving flesh. Within 60 hours, it will have covered the entire state. Within two weeks, the entire United States. You ask for the National Guard. I say, call out the entire army. Blast this thing off there. Already, Chief. Pumpers are ready. All the hoses coupled up. We'll flood that thing with water from all angles. All right. Here's the signal. Open them up. Full blast. Chief, look out. That flash. It's oh, reaching out. Get back, everybody. Everybody back. The fools. What good is water? I told them. The only hope is artillery. Bombs. All National Guardsmen, report to your armories. All National Guardsmen, report to your armories. General mobilization order. Battery in position, sir. Commence firing on the hour. Yes, sir. Ten. Five. Five. Zero. Commence firing! Fire! Useless. It has grown too large, and it grows too quickly. The flesh is already engulfing the guns. They came too late. You all right now, Dr. Alberts? Yes. Yes, I'm all right, Mr. Lewis. I'm all right. Well, I sure am glad I located you. I stalled as long as I could, another ten minutes, and we couldn't have taken off. That blasted protoplasm, or whatever it is, was sucking at the wheels by the time we left the ground. Yes. Yes, I saw. 5,000 feet. Well, we'll cruise around up here for a few minutes and then head west. It will do no good. You can't mean it. It, it must stop growing sometime. It must. Look at it down there. The gray blankets of evil covering everything. See how the roads are black with men and women and their children running for their lives. See how the protoplasmic gray reaches out and engulfs them. See Stop how... it! Stop talking like that. We'll get away. The government, they'll send bombing planes, poison gas. No, halt. To... Listen to me, Lewis. You remember only a handful of days ago, you asked me my prophecy of the end of the earth? You remember my answer? Oh, such a scholarly prophecy. Cessation of earth rotation. Mighty-sounding astronomical theories. But now, this is reality, Lewis. The end has come for humanity. Not in the red of atomic fusion. Not in the glory of interstellar combustion. Not in the peace of white, cold silence. But with that, that creeping, grasping flesh below us. It is a joke, eh, hey, Lewis? A great no. joke. The joke of the I... cosmos. The end no. of mankind. Why? Because of a chicken's heart. No! No, we won't die. I can't die. I'll find a safe landing somewhere. I'll find a place. The motor, it's cut out. We're in a spin. I can't get out of it. I told you, doomed. No, no. All mankind, doomed. No. We're falling right into it, into the heart. (laughs) 
Ted Waterson was a detective with an excellent reputation. Tonight, Ted was discouraged and was telling his friend Bill Leonard about it. The chief called me in this afternoon and told me if I didn't show some results in this case, he'd have to assign it to someone else. Now, that's the case of the disappearing professors, isn't it? Yeah. How far the country's leading scientists could disappear without leaving a clue is beyond me. Say, how about bringing me up to date, Ted? Well, about 15 years ago, four men made up the board of directors of a scientific society. They had to expel one of the members for illegal experimentation. This man swore he'd get his revenge and then promptly slipped into oblivion. Shucks, that's easy, Ted. <laughs> the man got his revenge. He murdered the board of directors, picked them off one by one. All you have to do is find the expelled professor and your case is solved. Oh, you think so, huh? What if I told you I have found him? Yeah? Where? Riverview Cemetery. He died ten years ago. Well, that's that. What was his name? Marcel Dudevant. Ah, forget about your case for a few days. Why not spend Saturday and Sunday at my country place with me? See, that's an idea. Okay. Hey, get your things packed. We'll drive up this afternoon. Bill's summer place was far from the cry of the city. Its houses, its people, and its ways had changed little in the past 50 years. And when the two men finally arrived on its main street late that night, they found the town deserted. Their car slowly wound its way up to the street where Bill's house stood. And they were about to swing into the driveway when Bill noticed a figure trudging along on the other side of the road. He turned his spotlight on the man, a neatly dressed bearded fellow who called out to them, That you, Bill? Yeah, I thought that was you, Doc. What are you doing out this time of the night? Been to see a patient down the street. Hey, you're just in time to have a little nightcap with me and my friend Ted. Come on in, I'll put the car away. A few minutes later, all three men were comfortably seated in Bill's living room, and Bill was pouring as he said, Ted's a detective, Doc, one of the best in the city. Really? Looking for someone up here, Mr. Waterson? Nope. Ted just came up for a rest. Fine place here. I've been resting for ten years. Uh, Doc Barnsdale here is the best pill peddler for 50 miles around. Uh, tell Ted how you came to settle here, Doc. Well, I had to leave the city. My health, you know. Came up here for a rest. Liked it so well, I can't leave. Ted spoke for the first time. Not interested in the city practice anymore, Doctor? Nope. I like to do research. In fact, I have my own laboratory right in my backyard. Drop around sometime. I'll show you. A short time later, the doctor left. And as the two boys were preparing for bed, Bill said, You know, when Doc first came here, there was a lot of gossip about him. People said he was a well-known surgeon and had to leave the city because of some scandal. Well, that's all over now, and Doc's one of our most respected citizens. Hmm, seems like a nice sort of person. I think I'll accept his invitation and look over his laboratory tomorrow. Next afternoon, Ted did just that and was surprised at the medical man's equipment. One thing especially interested him, an electric generator large enough to light an entire village. What did Barnes tell the doctor need with so much electricity? It made him curious. Another thing that struck him, there were at least six dogs in his yard and all seemed to be afraid of the doctor. Ted decided to satisfy that curiosity bump and look over the doc's equipment again, 
but this time without the doctor. He told Bill, and Bill said, But why? What do you think he's done? Well, I don't know, but I've got an enormous bump. Curiosity. And I'd like to learn what he does with all that power he generates. Ah, if you're caught, you'll get into trouble. I know all about that. Want to come along? Nope. But I will. Late that night, the two men crept quietly over to Dr. Barnstow's laboratory. Ted went inside while Bill kept watch on the outside. What Ted was most interested in was the basement, but a careful search revealed no way of getting down there. As he was about to give up, he looked into a closet. There was nothing but an old sweater hanging on a hook. As he reached to inspect it, he slipped, and to save himself from falling, he grabbed the sweater. The result was spectacular. One of the closet walls rose slowly and silently, revealing a stairway to the cellar. It was dark, but Ted managed to make his way down a step at a time. At the bottom of the stairs, he stopped and listened. The soft hum of a generator and motors reached his ears. Then another sound, a dog barking. Then came still another sound. Men whispering. Cautiously, he turned on his flashlight and swung the arc around the room. It rested on a sight that made Ted's body go limp. There before him, securely fastened to a glass pedestal, was the head of a large dog, barking. Ted approached the animal to examine it more closely. And then he saw that it had no body, just a head fastened on a glass case full of pumps and heaters and liquids. Astonished and horrified, Ted stared at the unfortunate result of man's experimentation. Then he heard a human voice, a voice that seemed to be calling at the top of its lungs but was making almost no sound. Help! Help! Quickly, Ted swung his light around. His amazement turned from wonder to unspeakable horror. For in another corner of the room were four more of the glass pedestals with their pumps and heaters and liquids. And on each pedestal rested a man's head. And each head was alive. Alert eyes blinked in the light from the flashlight. Lips moved as though speaking, pleading, begging. Ted moved over closer and placed his ear to the lips of the first head. It spoke. Ted did so. The room was enormous. It contained a dozen or so of the glass pedestals. All but five of them were empty. But these five were topped by living heads. Four human, one canine. There was something horribly unnatural about the sight of these living, bodiless heads. It made Ted's flesh crawl. But he forced himself to speak to one of the heads. Who did this to you? He did. Dr. Dudevant. Dr. Dudevant, that's impossible. He's been dead for ten years. Not dead. Here. Ted's case had been solved. He'd found the missing Dr. Dudevant, and apparently these were the four missing scientists. But now that he'd found them, what could he do with them? If the doctor were arrested, how could these heads be kept alive? While he was thinking, a door opened silently, and the man known as Dr. Barnsdale entered. Good evening, Mr. Waterson. Good evening, Dr. Dudevant. So, you've discovered my identity. 
I have, and I'm placing you under arrest. Placing me under arrest? <laughs> Do you think you'll ever leave this place again? I certainly will, and you're coming with me. I have other plans, Mr. Watterson. I'm going to place your head on a glass pedestal as I have the others. You'll be in good company. Look at them, Mr. Watterson, four of our most brilliant scientists. You'll hang for this, Dudevant. I don't think so. Without me, these heads would die, and the greatest discovery in medical history would be lost. And besides, Mr. Watterson, I've always wanted to add a detective to my collection. Well, here's one detective you won't add. <laughs> I'm going to leave you here. There are four trapdoors in this room. If you step on any one of them, you'll be dropped into a cell below. Once that is accomplished, you can be easily handled. Good night, Mr. Waterson. The doctor turned to leave, but before it could reach the door, Bill's voice was heard from the closet door. Hold it, Doc. I got a gun. Don't move. With a snarl, the doctor whirled, and as he did so, Ted grabbed him. Struggle was short and decisive. Dr. Dudevant was captured. At least 50 scientists, all famous, came to pay their respects to the four heads. All four begged to die rather than continue their horrible existence. The motors that pumped the life-giving fluids into the heads were turned off. The eyes closed, and eternal rest overtook them. Dr. Dudevant was tried, convicted, but cheated the law by committing suicide. So ended the case of the disappearing professors. And now, I'll return in just a few seconds. Meanwhile... Listen to what your announcer has to say. I hope I haven't frightened you with my eerie story. If you'd like to hear more, be at your radio when we meet again for another spine tingler. In the meantime, this is Sidney Mason assuring you that there are no spirits. No black magic, no supernatural, no criminals roam the roads. There's nothing to be afraid of, really, but just the same. Lock your windows and doors. Pull down your shades. Cover up. You never can tell what might happen so long. Are you one of the frightened? Do you have trouble sleeping at night? Do you find yourself tossing restlessly in bed? I wonder why. Perhaps you saw something during the waking day that troubled you. What was it? That, that strange man on the bus or, or the curious manner of that woman in the drugstore? Or maybe your story is like the bizarre incident of the life of John LeGrew. John LeGrew was a bachelor, but not by choice. For 12 long years since the war, he'd supported his ailing mother and denied his own happiness. You see, his anemic salary at the watch factory had not permitted any thoughts of increasing the LeGrew household. 
But John had had something out of life. In 1944 in France, during the war, he had met Denise Franson, the wonderful little French girl who had been the only love of John's shallow life. But a bombardment of her little village and the silence that followed had left John with only one conclusion. Denise was dead. Well, the war ended and he had returned to America and his mother and the watch factory. And the dull years had ticked away with the clocks. But one day, everything changed. John came home after a day at the factory and his mother said that a girl named Denise had called and wanted to talk to him. John couldn't believe his ears. There must be some mistake. Denise was dead. She had to be. But no. During dinner, the telephone in the hallway rang again. John rushed to answer it. It was impossible. It was unbelievable. But the sweet voice on the other end of the line was the same broken English of Denise François. And a dozen questions spilled from his heart. Where was she? How had she been? Why had she waited all these years to get in touch with him? Did she still love him? But oddly, Denise couldn't say much. Her voice seemed faint and shaky. But she gave out a telephone number. Butterfield 87777. And insisted that John should call her at that number at midnight. All the rest of the evening, John was in a fever of impatience. The tiny clock in the bureau mocked him as the hour and minute hands slowly crawled round to the appointed hour. Finally, it was midnight, and John lifted the phone from the hook and dialed the number. A male voice asked who was calling. Surprised, John wanted to know if he had the right number. Yes, it was Butterfield 87777. Whom did he want to speak to? John asked for Denise Franson. The voice seemed puzzled. I'm sorry, I don't seem to recognize the name. John's voice trembled. I'm sorry, he said, but this number was given to me to call at midnight, and the man's voice interrupted him, saying, Oh, of course, I beg your pardon. Denise Franson? Yes, certainly, I remember now. The body was delivered for embalming yesterday morning. Looks like an automobile accident, and yet, well, in the midst of life, we are in death. John Legrew hung up and sat in his chair, staring at the wall for a long, long time. And to this day, he still sits staring at a wall and hears a voice, a soft, sweet, trembling voice asking him to call. And call. Well, I leave you. This is Woodlawn. What? Oh, I thought you knew. The Woodlawn Cemetery is my destination. Uh, you see, I live here. Goodbye for a while, and and do call me when you get a chance.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed those chilling tales. Up next, we have Sleep No More. Now, this was a radio series on NBC that ran from 1952 to November of 1956. And it featured actor Nelson Olmsted, who narrated his own adaptations. The story tonight is called Three O'Clock. And it was first broadcasted on December 12th, 1956. So, sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to Three O'Clock. In just a moment, sleep no more, but first... No, no, just finishing my housework and enjoying NBC Bandstand on the radio. Oh, it's just fabulous. This week they have Freddie Martin and his orchestra, Burt Parks, of course, and Snooky Lanson as the singing star, and the Glenn Miller Orchestra under the direction of Ray McKinley. But why am I telling you about it? Tune it in yourself. NBC Bandstand, live weekday mornings on NBC Radio. And now stay tuned for Sleep No More on NBC. This is Nelson Olmsted. Sleep no more. Sleep no more. Turn down the lights. Sink back in your chair and don't look into the shadows. In the shadows, there may be moving things. Tonight, it may be, you will sleep no more. Good evening. This is Ben Grauer introducing tonight's tale of terror, told by Nelson Armstead on the National Broadcasting Company's presentation of Sleep no more. The story of terror can be as simple as a sheeted ghost rattling chains. It can be a complex and hidden world of horror, lurking in such unholy dimensions as only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. Or it can be those terrible, fathomless shadows which lie buried deep in the primitive mind of civilized man. And for this evening... Well, Nelson Armstead, tell us about this evening's story. Well, Ben, it's called Three O'Clock, and it's a masterly chiller by William Irish. When a man is jealous, and when that same man has long had the urge to kill, well, well, then you have Three O'Clock by William Irish, is that it? That's it, Ben. So, Nelson Armstead, tell us about this man. signed her own death warrant. He kept telling himself over and over that he wasn't to blame. She'd brought it on herself. He had never seen the man, but he knew there was one. He had known for six weeks now. One day he came home, and there was a cigar button and ashtray, still moist at one end, still warm at the other. His wife was too often flustered when he came home, hardly seemed to know what she was doing or saying at all. 
He pretended not to see any of these things. He was that type of man, Stapp was. He didn't bring his hates or grudges out into the open where they had a chance to heal. He nursed them in the darkness of his mind. That's a dangerous kind of man. If he'd been honest with himself, he would have had to admit that this mysterious afternoon caller was just the excuse he gave himself, that he daydreamed of getting rid of his wife long before there was any reason to, that there had been something in him for years past now urging, kill, kill, kill. Maybe ever since that time he'd been treated at the hospital for a concussion. He didn't have any of the usual excuses. She had no money of her own. He hadn't insured her. He stood to gain nothing by getting rid of her. She didn't nag and quarrel with him. She was a docile, tractable sort of wife. But this thing in his brain kept whispering, kill, kill, kill. So every afternoon, for six weeks now, when he came home from his shop, he had brought little things with him, very little things that were so harmless, so inoffensive in themselves, that no one, even if had they seen them, could have guessed. Fine little strands of copper wire such as he sometimes used in his watch repairing. And each time, a very little package containing a substance that, well, an explosives expert might have recognized, but no one else. Loose like that, it couldn't hurt you. But wadded tightly into cells in what had formerly been a soapbox down in the basement, compressed to within an inch of its life the way he had it, the whole accumulated 36 days worth of it, that would be a different story. They'd never know. There wouldn't be enough left of the flimsy house for them to go by sewer gas explosion, they'd think, or a pocket of natural gas in the ground somewhere around under them. He'd be in his shop, tinkering with his watch parts, and the phone would ring. Mr. Stapp! Mr. Stapp! Your house has just been demolished by a blast! <laughs> the last little package had been brought in two days ago. The box had all it could hold now, twice as much as was necessary to blow up the house. The box was set, the wires were in place, the batteries that would give off the necessary spark were attached. All that was necessary now was to hook up the clock. And then, today was the day. At 12.30 sharp, he wrapped up the alarm clock he'd been working on, tucked it under his arm, and left the shop. He took the bus, got off at his usual stop, walked three interminable suburban blocks to his house, and let himself in. She wasn't home, of course, as he knew. She was out marketing, as usual. He went directly to the door leading to the basement. He passed through it, closed it behind him, and went down the bare wooden steps to the basement floor. She hadn't even known that he'd come down here each night for a few minutes while she was in the kitchen doing the dishes. By the time she got through, he was upstairs again behind his newspaper. It didn't take long to add the contents of each successive little package to what was already in the box. The wiring had taken more time, but he'd gotten that done one night when she'd gone out to the movies. Or so she'd said. The little box, that was no longer merely a box now, but an infernal machine, was standing over against the wall to one side of the oil burner. He was proud of it. Prouder than of any fine watch he'd ever repaired or reconstructed. He unwrapped the clock and spread out the few necessary small implements he'd brought with him from the shop. Two fine copper wires were sticking stiffly out of a small hole he'd bored in the box, in readiness, like the antenna of some kind of insect. Through them, death would go in. He wound the clock up first, for he couldn't safely do that once it was connected. He wound it up to within an inch of its life. He set the alarm for three. But there was a difference now. 
Instead of just setting off a harmless bell when the hour hand reached three and the minute hand reached twelve, the wires attached to it leading to the batteries would set off a spark. A single, tiny, evanescent spark. That was all. He wondered why more people didn't do things like this. They didn't know what they were missing. Probably not clever enough to be able to make the things themselves. That was why. He set the clock itself by his own pocket watch. One fifteen. Then he carefully guided the antenna-like wires leading from the box through a hole previously bored in the back of the clock and fastened them to the necessary parts of the mechanism. It was highly dangerous, but his hands didn't play him false. And when he'd done with it, it stood there on the floor as if placed there at random up against an innocent-looking copper-lidded soapbox ticking away. Ten minutes had gone by since he'd come down here. One hour and forty minutes were still to go by. Death was on the wing. He smiled a little and went on up the stairs, not furtively or fearfully, but like a man does in his own house, with an unhurried air of ownership, head up, shoulders back, tread firm. As he opened the basement door and stepped out into the ground floor hall, someone jumped on him, caught him brutally by the throat with one hand, flung him back against the wall and pinned him there. And then the man struck out at him, hit him a stunning blow on the side of the head with his free hand, stapped senses dulled into a whirling flux for a minute. And before they had cleared, a second man had leaped down from up the stairs from one of the rooms above, and he said, Hurry up! Get something to tie him up with, and let's get out of here! Oh, good Lord, don't tie... Stapp tried to say, clawing at his own throat to free it. He wasn't fighting the man off. He was only trying to tear that throttling impediment off long enough to get out what he had to tell him. But his assailant couldn't tell the difference. He struck him savagely a second time and a third time, and Stapp went limp there against the wall without altogether losing consciousness. The second one had come back already with a rope that looked like Fran's clothesline. Stapp was dimly aware of this rope going around and around him, crisscross in and out, legs and body and arms. Don't, he panted. His mouth was suddenly nearly torn in two as a large handkerchief or rag was thrust in, effectively silencing all further sound. Then they whipped something around outside of that to keep it in and fastened it behind his head. And one of the men asked, Where'll we put him? Where? Leave him where he is. No. I did my last stretch just in account of leaving the guy in the open. Let's shove him back down where he was. Well, this brought on a new spasm, almost epileptic in its violence. He squirmed and writhed and shook his head back and forth. They had picked him up between them now, head and feet, kicked the basement door open, and were carrying him down the steps to the bottom. They still couldn't be made to understand that he wasn't resisting, that he wouldn't call the police that he wouldn't lift a finger to have them apprehended if they'd only let him out of here with them. They deposited him on the floor by the pipe in the corner and lashed him in a sitting position there with an added length of rope that had been coiled in the basement. As the men left, one of them turned back and said, Now take it easy, bud. Relax. I used to be a sailor. You never get out of them knots. Stapp swiveled his skull desperately, threw his eyes at the clock one last time, and then... With the horrible slowness of a nightmare, the man turned and went out through the doorway. The basement door ebbed back into its socket with a minor click that to him was like the crack of doom. In the silence now, 
Above the surge of his own tidal breathing that came and went like surf upon a shoreline was the counterpoint of the clock. With the men went his only link with the outside world. They were the only two people in the whole city who knew where he was at this moment. No one else, not a living soul, knew where to find him. Now what would happen to him if he wasn't found and gotten out of here by 3 o'clock? It was 25 to 2 now, and the clock was ticking so rhythmically, so remorselessly, so fast. Then, at 4 to 2, a door opened above without warning. Oh, blessed sound. Oh, lovely sound. The front door this time, and high-heeled shoes placked over his head like castanets. Fran, he shouted. Fran, he yelled. Fran, he screamed. But all that got past the gag was a low whimper that didn't even reach across the basement. His face was wet and dark with the effort it cost him, and a cord stood out at each side of his palpitating neck like a splint. The tap, tap, tap went into the kitchen, stopped a minute. She was putting down her parcels and came back again. If only there was something he could kick at with a centerlock peak, make a clutter with. He tried hoisting his lashed legs clear of the floor and pounding them down again with all his might. Maybe the sound of the impact would carry up to her. All he got was a soft cushion sound with twice the pain of striking a stone surface with your bare palm. An electrical discharge of pain shot up the back of his legs, coursed up his spine, and exploded at the back of his head like a brilliant rocket. Meanwhile, her steps had halted about where the hall closet was, and then she went on toward the stairs that led to the upper floor, faded out upon them, going up. She was out of earshot now, temporarily, but she was in the house with him at least... That awful aloneness was gone. He felt such gratitude for her nearness. He felt such love and need for her. He wondered how he could ever have thought of doing away with her only one short hour ago. He saw now that he must have been insane to contemplate such a thing. Five after. She'd been back nine minutes now. And then it was ten at first slowly and then faster and faster, terror, which had momentarily been quelled by her return, began to fasten upon him again. Why did she stay up there on the second floor like that? Why didn't she come down here to the basement and look for something? Well, she might intend to stay up there all afternoon. Eleven past two. Forty-nine minutes left. No, not just minutes left. It wasn't fair. Fran, he shrieked. Fran, come down here. Can't you hear me? The gag absorbed his shrieks like a sponge. The phone trilled out suddenly in the lower hallway, midway between him and her. He'd never heard such a beautiful sound before. A tear stood out in each eye. Well, that must be the man now. That would bring her down. And then he heard her quick step descending the stairs to answer it. He could hear every word she said down there where he was from all these cheap matchwood houses. Hello? Oh, yes, Dave, I, I just got in now. And then? Oh, Dave, I'm all upset. I had $17 upstairs in my bureau drawer, and it's gone, and the wristwatch that Paul gave me is gone, too. It looks to me as if someone broke in here while I was out and robbed us. Stapp almost writhed with delight. She knew they'd been robbed. She'd get the police now. Surely they'd search the whole place. Surely they'd look down here and find him. And then she said, No, I haven't reported it yet. I suppose I should, but I don't like the idea. On your account, you know. No, I, I'm going to call up Paul at the shop. There's just a chance that he took the money and the watch with him when he, when he left this morning. You come out then, Dave. There was a pause while she broke the connection. Then he heard her dial his shop number and wait while they were ringing. 
Of course, no one answered. In terrible silence, he screamed, I'm right here under your feet. Don't waste time. For heaven's sakes, come down here. Finally, she hung up, and he heard her going up the stairs again. And he whimpered disappointedly. One half hour and nine scant minutes more left. And they ticked away with the prodigality of tropical raindrops on a corrugated tin roof. He kept straining and pulling away from the pipe that held him fast. And then falling back exhausted to rest a while. To struggle and to strain some more. How could ropes hold that unyieldingly? Each time he felt back weaker. Less able to contend with them than the time before. For he wasn't little strands of hemp. He was layers of thin skin that broke one by one and gave forth burning pain and finally blood. The doorbell rang out sharply. The man had come. Stapp's chest started rising and falling with renewed hope. Four ears instead of two to hear whatever slight sound he might manage to make. And he must, he must find a way of making one. Oh, thank God for this admirer, or whatever he was. Thank God for their rendezvous. She came quickly down the stairs a second time, and her footfalls hurried down the hall. The front door opened. Hello, Dave, he heard her say. And a man's voice asked, Did it turn up yet? No, and I've looked high and low. I tried to get Paul after I spoke to you, but he was out to lunch. Come in the kitchen. I'll make you a cup of coffee. Her quick, brittle step went first, and his heavier, slower one followed. There was the sound of a couple of chairs being drawn out, and the man's footfalls died out entirely. Hers continued busily back and forth for a while on a short orbit between stove and table. What were they going to do? Sit there for the next half hour? Couldn't he make them hear him in some way? He tried clearing his throat, coughing. It hurt furiously, and the gag muffled even the cough to a blurred, purring sort of sound. Twenty-six to three, only minutes left now. Minutes, not even a full half hour anymore. And then he heard her say, Don't you think we ought to tell Paul uh, about us? No. What kind of a guy is he? Well, Paul's not narrow-minded. He's very fair and broad. Well, you have nothing to be afraid of in Paul's account, Dave. Didn't you... Well, didn't you ever tell him about me at all? You mean the beginning? Oh, I told him you'd been in one or two scrapes, but like a little fool, I let him think I'd lost track of you and didn't know where you were anymore. Why, why, that was her brother she'd said that about. The man sitting up there with her confirmed it right as the thought burst in his mind. Yeah. I know it's tough on you, sis. You're happily married and all that. Yeah, I, I got no right to come around and gum things up for you. No one's proud of a jailbird and escaped convict for a brother. Yeah, I suppose I'll have to go back and finish it out, but seven years, old friend. Seven years out of a man's life. David, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. But before you decide anything, let's go downtown and talk it over with Paul and hear what he says. One chair jarred back, and then the other... He could hear dishes clatter, as though they'd all been lumped together in one stack. But were they going to leave again? Were they going to leave him behind here, alone, with only minutes to spare? Their footsteps went down the hall. Stay with me, Stapp wailed. Stay! 
panic-stricken, Stapp did the only thing he could think of. Struck the back of his head violently against the thick pipe he was attached to. A, a sheet of blue flame darted before his eyes. The pain was so excruciating, he knew he couldn't repeat the attempt. But they must have heard something. Some dull thud or reverberation must have carried up along the pipe. He heard her stop short for a minute and say, What was that? The man said he hadn't heard anything. And she took his word for it. And there was the sound of the front door opening. She passed through it. The man passed through it. It closed. And they were gone. He was left alone with his self-fashioned doom a second time. And the first seemed a paradise in retrospect compared to this. For then he had a full hour to spare. He'd been rich in time. And now he only had 15 minutes, one miserly quarter hour. Well, there wasn't any use struggling anymore. He couldn't anyway, even if he wanted to. Flames seemed to be licking lazily around his wrists and ankles. He'd found a sort of palliative now, the only way there was left. He'd keep his eyes down and pretend the hands were moving slower than they were. It was better than watching them constantly. It blunted a little of the terror at least. The ticking, he couldn't hide from. Of course, every once in a while, when he couldn't resist looking up and verifying his own calculations, there'd be a renewed burst of anguish. But in between times, it made it more bearable to say, it's only gained a half minute since the last time I looked. Then, suddenly, the outside world intruded again. The doorbell rang out. He took no hope from the summons at first. Maybe it was some peddler. Came again. Whoever was ringing was truculently impatient at being kept waiting. A third ring was given the bell, this time a veritable blast that kept on for nearly half a minute. And then as the peal finally stopped, a voice called out forcefully, Anybody home in there? Gas company. And suddenly Stapp was quivering all over. This was the one call, the one incident in all the day's domestic routine from earliest morning until latest night that could possibly have brought anyone down into the basement. The meter was up there in the wall, staring him in the face. And her brother had had to take her out of the house at just this particular time. There was no one to let the man in. The gas inspector gave the bell one more try, as if venting his disappointment of being balked, rather than in any expectation of being admitted at this late time in the proceedings. He gave it innumerable short jabs, like a telegraph key, and then he called out disgustedly, Evidently for the benefit of some unseen assistant waiting in a truck out at the curb. They're never in when you want them to be. There was a single quick tread in the cement. Away from the house. Stapp died a little. His arms and legs got cold up to the elbows and knees. His heart seemed to beat slower, and he had trouble getting a full breath. Saliva escaped and ran down his chin, and his head drooped forward and lay in his chest for a while, inert. The clock ticked on. He noticed that his mind was starting to wander. Suddenly, the outer world returned again. This time it was the phone. It must be Fran and her brother trying to find out if he'd come back here in their absence. They'd found the shop closed, must have waited outside it for a while, and when he still didn't come, they didn't know what to make of it. And when no one answered... That would tell him, surely, that something was wrong. Wouldn't they come back now to find out what had happened to him? 
But how could they dream he was in the basement the whole time? Why should they think he was here in the house if he didn't answer the phone? Fran would become real worried. Maybe they'd go to the police. But that would be hours from now. What good would that do? They'd look everywhere but here for him. When a man is reported missing, the last place they'd look for him would be in his own home. It stopped ringing finally, and silence came rolling back in its wake. Nine minutes to three. Oh, what a lovely number was nine. Let it be nine forever, not eight or seven. Nine for all eternity. Make time stand still. But no, it was already eight. Oh, what a precious number was eight. So rounded, so symmetrical. Let it be eight forever. A woman's voice called out in sharp reprimand somewhere outside in the open. Bobby, be careful what you're doing. You'll break that window. She was some distance away, but the ringing dictatorial tones carried clearly. And suddenly, Stapp saw the blurred shape of a ball strike the basement transom. A child came close up against the transom to get its ball back. If it would only turn its head over this way, it could look right in. It could see him. The glass wasn't too smeary for that. Stapp started to weave his head violently from side to side, hoping the flurry of motion would attract it and catch its eye. Suddenly, it had turned its head and was looking directly in through the transom. And then it saw him, and it yelled, Mommy, look! An adult hand suddenly darted downward from the upper right-hand corner of the transom, caught the child's wrist, bore its arm upward out of sight. But it pointed and said, Mommy, funny man tied up. Look! The adult voice, reasonable, logical, dispassionate, answered, Why, that wouldn't look nice. Mommy can't peer into other people's houses like you can. The child's head disappeared above the transom. Its body was pivoted around away from him. He could see the hollows at the back of its knees for an instant longer. And then its outline on the glass blurred in withdrawal. It was gone. Only the little clear spot it had scoured remained to mock him in his crucifixion. He rolled his head away from the window, back toward the clock finally. To his horror, it stood at three to three. He couldn't feel anymore terror or hope or anything else. A sort of numbness set in with a core of gleaming awareness remaining that was in his mind. He was making animal noises deep in his throat as the minute hand slowly blended with the notch of twelve. Guttural sounds like a dog worrying about a bone though the gag prevented the sounds from emerging in full volume. He puckered the flesh around his eyes apprehensively, creasing them into slits, as though the closing of his eyes could ward off, lessen the terrific force of what was to come. The hand on the dial gradually became upright. It was three o'clock, but he didn't know it. He was shaking all over from head to foot, not with fear, but with laughter. And then everything went black. What's the matter with him, officer? What's the matter with him? It was Fran, and she was standing over him crying. The policeman was untying the hard, knotted ropes and taking the gag out of his mouth. The officer felt his pulse, and then he said, Well, he must have passed out, ma'am. But I think he'll be all right. We better get him to a hospital, though. The clock said five past seven. The cop got up, went over to the box, and kicked it idly with his foot. 
It shifted lightly along the wall a little and took the clock with it. And he asked, What's in this box? And Stapp's wife looked at it and answered, Nothing. Well, it used to have some kind of fertilizer in it, but only this morning I took it out and emptied it, and the flowers I've been trying to raise in the back of the house, it's just an empty box. Turn up the lights now. You can look around you. Nobody is there, really. Everything is all right, isn't it? Step over here, Nelson Olmstead, and tell us about next week's story. Next week's story on Sleep No More is about a woman in a large, empty house which the wind buffets and shakes. And in that house, the woman finds a pinpoint of light where there should be no light. The story is The Storm by McKnight Melmar. You have been listening to Sleep No More, an NBC Radio Network production directed by Kenneth McGregor. Mr. Armstead's albums are recorded exclusively for Vanguard Records. Until next week, when Nelson Armstead will again be here in person, this is Ben Grauer bidding you good night. That's the show for this evening. I want to thank you all for listening. And remember, you can find me at Facebook. You can find me at Facebook. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror1970. Or you can find me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd or on Twitter at Radio Show Nerd 1. And if you want to drop me a line, make a suggestion, have a request, hey, even a critique, please feel free to email me at radioshownerd at gmail.com. And I do have a new YouTube channel, Terror Radio Podcast. It may take you a while to find it because it's still new, so it's not in the on the rhythm, but it's there. Please feel free to check it out. Subscribe. Highly appreciate it. Again, this is Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>